Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to church. We're so glad to have you here from around the city, uh, around the state of West Virginia, around the country, or even around the world. Thank you so much for being a part of our services. I would much rather be here with you in person. I look forward to meeting you. Uh, If you're new to us, I would love to meet you next time we're able to gather. Uh, But for those of you who call Bible Center Church your home, I wanted to let you know that uh, we've just started the process of what it would look like to reopen our campus. Our staff is working on a, a plan to reopen our campus. And so we're gonna be communicating. Our goal is to over-communicate that to you so you don't have to worry. Uh, But we do know that next Sunday, uh, May 10th, Mother's Day, we're gonna be back here online, back on TV. And so we'd love to have you join us here again as we launch a brand new series uh, from the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus records events that are over 3,000 years old, maybe even over 3,500 years old, but they're very, very relevant to us today. We find in the book of Exodus that there was a a time of transition for the people of God. It was a time of uncertainty. It was a time of confusion in many ways. And so we've entitled this series, Divergent, What in the World Do We Do Now? And if there's ever been a time in our lives that we're asking that question, what in the world do we do now? I believe it's right now. This is a time of transition for us. Even as things begin to open up, it's gonna be a time of uncertainty, a time of confusion. Uh, What do we do as Christians when the journey feels so aimless? How do we emerge from a crisis like this? The ancient book of Exodus has answers for us that I am confident uh, will speak to us today, wherever we are, wherever we live. Now, the timing for this series couldn't be better in that we're gonna start the series uh, with a message from Exodus chapter one and two about Moses' mother. Uh, We're actually going to look for the grace of God, characteristics of God uh, that we see in Moses' mother. And it's perfect because next Sunday is Mother's Day. And so I wanna invite you to have somebody to tune in with you online or to watch our our TV broadcast with us, with you. And so that way we we can truly see the beauty of God as seen through Bible characters, even a Bible character like Moses's mother. Now we're going to need your help between now and next Sunday. And that is we would like to have a, a montage, a tribute uh, to mothers. And so I'm going to ask if you would go to biblecenterchurch.com forward slash moms. That's our website forward slash moms. And you can download or upload a picture uh, that we can use, we can show on our broadcast, specifically our internet broadcast. Maybe it's a picture of you and your mother. Maybe it's a picture of you and your children. Uh, Maybe it's a picture of you uh, uh, with a special lady who's meant a lot to you. Maybe she's not your biological mother, but someone who's just meant a lot to you. We would love to scroll through those pictures prior to next week's broadcast. And so if you go to biblecenterchurch.com forward slash moms, we'll be able to get that ready for next Sunday, Mother's Day, May the 10th. Go ahead and open up your Bible or your Bible app, if you will, to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6 and verse 45 is where we're going to begin. If you don't have a Bible, you can certainly just Google it, Mark chapter 6 and verse 45, but the words will also be up here on the screen uh, beside me. Today we finish our series with a message entitled, Why Does God Allow Us to Go Through Storms? 
why does God allow us to go through storms? And I want you to know where we're going before we take off. Today's message is very, very simple. I'm gonna simply retell the true story of this event from Mark chapter six, and then I'm gonna give you one truth. I'm gonna give you one big idea to remember and take with you through the week. And so if you wanna take notes, we have notes available on our website or on our app. You can also just take notes right there on your phone. Let's go ahead and jump into the story. According to Matthew, Mark, and John, the setting for today's events happens right after the time that Jesus feeds the multitudes. You've probably heard the story if you've grown up near church, or even if you haven't grown up in church, you've perhaps heard somebody refer to the five loaves and the two fishes. I like to say this is the time that Jesus was given a lunchable by a little boy. It had five breadsticks and two fish sticks, and Jesus turned it into a miracle to feed thousands. Now, the text actually says that he fed 5,000 men because unfortunately that was the way they counted uh, in that culture and in that day. But it says besides women and children. So it is possible there could have been 15 or 20,000 people there that day that Jesus fed when he performed this miracle. Now, there's an interesting part of the miracle that sometimes we leave out, and that is after Jesus had fed the multitudes, he told his disciples to go around with baskets and literally pick up all that remained. So there's a lot of lessons in there. We teach our kids, don't, let's not waste any food, uh, but there's something more that's gonna take place. Every disciple, the Bible says, picked up a full basket of remains of bread and fish. So I'm gonna ask you to remember that one tidbit. Remember that one truth. Every disciple had a basket because we're gonna come back to that at the end of my message. Let's go ahead and look at Mark chapter six and verse 43. Mark 6, 43. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish, of bread and fish. All right, let's, go, let's jump to verse 45. Verse 45 tells us, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now, in this passage, we find that it's important for Jesus that he send his disciples in a specific direction. The disciples didn't get in the boats by happenstance, but Jesus told them, he made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him. Now, if we look at this map, we can see general idea of where Jesus was and where this miracle took place. This is the Sea of Galilee in Northern Israel, beautiful spot. I've talked a lot about it recently, uh, but this, the miracle of the feeding of the thousands, the 15, 20,000 likely took place just south, southeast of Bethsaida, probably at about one o'clock or so geographically on the Sea of Galilee. And we know from the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, Luke, and John, because it's the only miracle that took place in all four gospels, uh, that it was near, but not in Bethsaida. So most believe it happened on one of the hillsides out here again at about one o'clock. Now, it's gonna tell us in a moment, we're gonna see that the disciples cross the lake. Jesus just told us in verse 45, he told his disciples to go across the lake. And he said in verse 45, go towards Bethsaida. If you're taking notes, you wanna write down John chapter six 
in verse 17. This is one of those spots that people sometimes like to point out a discrepancy or an error in the Bible. Okay, so Mark 6.45, it's Jesus said, take the boat and go to or towards Bethsaida. John 6.17 says, take the boats and go to or towards Capernaum. Critics of the Bible say, see there, there's an error in the scriptures. But it's actually not an error at all. If you think about it, a couple of things could have been true. The fact that they went towards Bethsaida and that direction also meant that they were going towards the city of Capernaum. And so both were true. It's also possible and highly likely that Jesus intended for them to stay close to the shore, maybe passing through the port of Bethsaida and then on to Capernaum because Bethsaida was a fishing town. Either way, there's no discrepancy. They were going from east heading west across the top part of the Sea of Galilee. Notice verse 46, Mark 6, 46. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Jesus did that a lot to retreat, to spend time with his father. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone. Jesus was alone on land. Let's stop there for a moment. Everything seems good. Jesus is praying. The disciples are in the water. They're on their way where they're supposed to be going. What could go wrong? What's the problem of this story? Well, this is where the the story, the wind of the story literally uh, picks up. Look with me in verse 48. Verse 48, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake and he was about to pass by them. Now, when we see here the word saw, uh, one of two things are true. It's possible that Jesus physically saw them out on the water. Uh, on, at daylight, it's, it'd be easy to see, even though the lake is, is about five, six, seven miles wide or so at its widest and about 13 miles long, you can see all the way across the lake. And so if it were daylight, Jesus would have been able to see him with his eyes. But this happened at nighttime. Now, there are occasions when I was there, uh, the moon wasn't quite as full as what it is at other times, of course. But under a full moon, you might be able to see on a clear night from the mountains where Jesus was on the eastern side out into the middle of the lake. So it's possible that he saw them with his eyes. But it's also possible that because the storm was so great that there's clouds and fog and lightning and thunder and rain, it's, it's also possible that this is a spiritual event because Jesus says God is, is in a way we don't understand, fully God and fully man, able to see where the disciples are. Now, what were the disciples doing? It says here that they were straining at the oars. There were these gargantuan waves in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee sets 700 feet below sea level and the Golan Heights, which are just north of the Sea of Galilee, uh, set thousands of feet above sea level with snow caps. And so the cold wind of the Golan Heights rushes down on the warm water of the Sea of Galilee and creates uh, horrible storms. There was a storm while we were visiting there. It was there one night and the waves were just crashing against the shore behind our hotel. It reminded me of the ocean. They were huge. And so this was taking place. A trip that should have normally taken the disciples about 60 to 90 minutes from the coast of just south of Bethsaida over to Capernaum, 60 to 90 minutes has taken them at least eight hours As you read Matthew's account and Luke's account, or excuse me, in John's account, you find that it was at least eight hours 
if not more. Now let's imagine the storm for a minute. Imagine as the boat lurches and lunges like a kite in a thunderstorm. Imagine as the rain falls from the night sky in buckets. Imagine as lightning slashes the darkness like an enchanted sword. Imagine as the wind rips the sails of the boat, leaving the disciples in the middle of the lake tossed by the waves. Think about how exhausted they must have felt, how frustrated they must have been. Here they are, professional fishermen, many of them, and and they think they're going to die. They've been trained their entire life on that lake, and now they think it's over. They think they're going to die. One gospel writer says they were in the middle of the lake, tossed by the wind. I wanna ask you to relate. Take a minute and just try to relate to the disciples Maybe, not, you're, maybe you're not in a physical storm right now. I hope you're not watching this, but it's very possible that you're in a spiritual storm or an emotional storm. And so if we were to substitute a few words, maybe your storm would go something like this. Maybe you're in the middle of a divorce tossed about by guilt. Maybe you're in the middle of debt tossed about by creditors. Maybe you're in the middle of a recession tossed about by stimulus packages or the lack of stimulus packages or a recession. Maybe you're in the middle of a pandemic, which we all are, but you're being tossed about by confusing news cycles and politics. There's all sorts of things that could have been going through the disciples' minds. Think about what would have motivated them. What was going through their minds as they thought they were going to die? You can picture some of them, we're just using our imaginations, some of them rowing with every fiber of every bit of strength they have because they've got to get, got to get back to Capernaum where their families lived. That was their home base. That was where their families, that was where their wives, that's where their children were. And so they're seeing the faces of their loved ones. They've got to row harder. There were others who, who were saying that we, we can't die out here. I mean, we've staked our, we put our reputation on the line. If we die out here, everything that we've lived for so far, everything we've sacrificed is gonna be worthless. Or maybe some of them really were rowing hard for the cause. They believed it all depended on them, that their strength was the only factor in this mission being a success. And they put all the weight of the world on their own shoulders, thinking that it was totally up to them. But you picture as Jesus waited at least eight hours to come to their rescue, I imagine, the text doesn't tell us, but I imagine that Jesus let them wait so that they could come to the end of their rope. They could come to the end of their own strength and know that they could not do it. Notice what happens next. Thankfully, back in verse 48, says that Jesus went out to them Jesus went out to them. The creator of the wind and the rain walks on the water. Storms are just pavement for Jesus because he's the creator of the storms. Now think with me just for a minute. Could Jesus have resolved this issue from the shoreline? Could Jesus have just simply said, peace be still as he was up on the mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee? Could he have done that? And the answer is, of course, yes, he could. 
Colossians 1.16 says he's the creator of all things. Colossians 1.17 says he's the sustainer of all things. So by Jesus, all things are sustaining. They're held together. Jesus could have done this from a distance, but instead he came to where they were. You know, this shows us so much of the character of Jesus. Jesus doesn't just give us a message. Jesus gives us himself. Jesus doesn't just give us a promise, but Jesus gives us his presence. Jesus came to where they were. He wanted to be with his disciples to show that he was the reason. He was the answer. He was the only way they would have true peace. Now there's something here in verse 48 we, we don't wanna miss. It says here that shortly before dawn, again, the other disciples tell us that it had been about eight or nine hours. He went out to them walking on the lake, but he was about to pass them by. When I first started studying this message this week, I really wondered why in the world Mark included this detail. There's a number of details in the gospels that we're not to drill down on and they're just there for parable's sake or story's sake, but this isn't a parable, this is narrative. This literally happened. So why did Mark think it was so important to include that Jesus almost passed them by? If you're taking notes, this is uh, literally uh, on the deep end of the pool, but I'm gonna ask you to write this down. You're gonna, you're gonna need this. I think this will bless you like it blessed me. This passage echoes Exodus chapter 33 and Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus 33 and 34, the Bible tells us in at least three occasions in those two chapters that God passed before Moses. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that would have been Jesus's Bible. In the Greek translation of the Septuagint, the literal, the same word that Mark uses here that Jesus was about to pass them by is the exact same Greek word that was used of God with Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. So Jesus and, and Mark are trying to get us to see that Jesus is giving his disciples clear evidence that he is the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. It also echoes Job chapter nine and verse eight. Job chapter nine and verse eight, where Job says that it's God who tramples the waves of the sea, Job 9, eight. It's also pointing us to Job 9, 11, where Job says that God passes by me on the sea. If you're taking notes, you're gonna to wanna to also write down Psalm 77, 19 and 20, Habakkuk 3, 15, and 1 Kings 19, 11 through 13. All of these are instances where God passes by in front of his people to show them his glory. So what's Jesus trying to tell the disciples? It's simple. He's trying to let them know, I am not a magician I am not a shaman. I am not a wizard. I'm not here just to do magic tricks. I am God in the flesh. God the Father sent God the Son to live among us. Jesus is fully God and yet fully man. So how does the story end? What happens at the end? Look with me in verse 49. And when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They thought he was a ghost. 
Now, this idea of seeing him walk on the lake, there are some critics of the Bible who want to say that, well, he wasn't actually walking on the lake. He was just walking near the lake, on the shore of the lake. Well, that's impossible, first and foremost, because of this text. But lest there is any doubt, Matthew chapter 14 and verse 24 says that they were far from land. Matthew 14, 24 actually estimates how far from land they were. They were out in the lake quite a ways. And you Disney fans, those of us who love Disney, I think you're gonna like this. When it says that they saw a ghost, the Greek word is literally phantasma, phantasma. It's from where we get our our word phantasmic. Some of us have seen the presentation, the production of phantasmic. A phantasma, this is a very old word. It referred to not just any ghost, but it referred to the legends of the water ghosts. And so the disciples are thinking, they're seeing a phantasma, they're seeing a water ghost appearing to them across the water. But in their fear, they were better at spotting ghosts than they were at spotting God. They were better at spotting ghosts than they were at spotting God. Isn't that just like us? It's just like me. When I am overcome with fear, it's, I can clearly see the, 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 fig, the figurative ghosts in life. I can see the, the demon, so to speak, behind every bush. I just know that this scenario is gonna end badly. If I'd make that turn in life, something bad and awful is going to happen because that's the way our, our fear is wired. But God invites us to see God more than we see our ghosts. The disciples didn't expect Jesus to come to them this way, and neither do we. We expect Jesus to come in the form of a peaceful song or of a, in a quiet retreat. We expect G- to find Jesus in our morning devotions, in our church dinners, and in seasons of meditation. But we never expect to find Jesus in a bear market or in a global pandemic or in a pink slip or in a lawsuit or in a war. We never expect to see Jesus in the storm, but it's in the storms when Jesus does his deepest work in his followers. Notice with me, verse 50, Mark 6, 50, they cried out because they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Be brave, he says, don't have fear, it is I. How many people, how many men have, have awoken, have, have come to their senses in ICU, only hear their wife standing at their bedside or a nurse standing nearby and to say, I'm here, you're not alone. How many people have lost their retirement only to hear their family come around them and support them and say, it's gonna be okay. We're here for you. You're not alone. We're not gonna let you fall. How many little league boys and little league girls have seen their mom and dad in the bleachers? I am here changes everything. You cannot go where God is not. Look over your shoulder and God is following you. Look into the storm and it's Christ coming for you. For those of you who are pilots, I like to say that God's call sign is I am here. I am here. Now there's an interesting fact 
here in this passage. And this is something that we don't wanna miss. It's easy to miss just to go over it. But if you're taking notes, you're gonna write this down. When Jesus said, take courage, do not be afraid. It was easy to understand what he means. But in between, this gets lost in our English translations. The idea of it is I could also be translated this way. The I am is here. The I am is here. You see, what's he talking about? The I am is here. Again, Jesus is pointing them back and everybody in the boat knew exactly what he was talking about. He was pointing back to Exodus chapter three and verse 14, when God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God's name, the best we can translate into our words is just simply, I am. Jehovah, Yahweh is the great I am. Jesus said the same thing in John chapter eight. He was talking to the disciples, excuse me, talking to the religious leaders in John chapter eight in verse 57 through 59. And during the conversation, I love this. Jesus looked at the religious leaders and he said, he said, yeah, I was having this conversation with Abraham a while ago. And the religious leaders are like, Abraham, notice what they said. You are not yet 50 years old. They said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus. And Jesus is talking about conversations he's had with Abraham. And Jesus replied, verily, truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is God. He is Jehovah in the flesh. Now we look at verse 51. Jesus does something amazing. He climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down and they were completely amazed. They were completely amazed. Now there are certain kinds of amazement. There's amazement that doesn't have faith, but there's an amazement here referring to people who are amazed to the point of faith. Mark doesn't record it for us because of the, 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 the message, the overall theological themes of the gospel of Mark, but Matthew records it for us. In Matthew chapter 14 and verse 33, Matthew says, at this moment, the disciples said, truly, you are the son of God. The disciples had an epiphany. They recognized Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the son of God. And it says in verse 53, when they had crossed over the sea, talking about the sea, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. Now, this story ends fairly simply in the Gospel of Mark, uh, but I wanted to read for you how the, how the Gospel of John, the writer John, who was also in the boat, ends the story. So John says in John 6, 21, immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The wording here, immediately. Now, that's typically a word that Mark uses, but John says immediately the boat reached the shore. Now, in seminary, I had different kinds of friends. I still have different kinds of pastor friends. And some of my seminary pastor friends, I can remember sitting around after class and and they would speculate that maybe the disciples were teleported and the whole boat was teleported with Jesus to the shore immediately. Well, I guess it's possible for those of you who are, you know, sci-fi fans, um, but that's not exactly the way I see it. So I just have my opinion and, and they have theirs and you can draw yours. But I, there is something about this word immediately. 
it's not that they just took a leisurely stroll or a leisurely cruise back to land, but somehow Jesus got them from point A to point B immediately. So I like to picture it like a, a jet ski or a, a speedboat on the Canal River. If you've been in a speedboat, if you've got a speedboat or a jet ski, you know, there's just nothing like just putting the hammer down, going hard. And so I can picture Jesus just somehow turning that fishing boat into a speedboat. I don't know how it happened, but you use your imagination. But why did Jesus do this to the disciples? Why did he let them have this experience? The answer is in Mark chapter six and verse 52. The whole text comes back to this verse. Mark 6, 52. For they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. Now, why, what do they mean the loaves? Well, he's referring to the miracle that happened just prior to this. So again, the miracle of the feeding of the multitudes took place, is recorded in all four gospels. This particular instance of Jesus walking on the water is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke doesn't record it, but in Matthew, Mark, and John, we find that in all three gospels, it happened, Jesus walked on the water the evening or the next morning early, right after he fed the multitudes. And so what Mark is trying to get us to see is that when Jesus, during peacetime, performed the miracle, it did nothing for the disciples' hearts. It didn't open their heart in any way. It didn't generate any faith. As far as they were concerned at that moment, Jesus was a spiritual vending machine. They were consumers who were just looking for something they could get from Jesus. But after they went through the storm, something miraculous happened. Their hearts, literally here, their hearts used to be hardened, but he is saying that now in context, they're understanding in the storm what they didn't understand in the time of peace. They understand in the storm what they didn't understand in the sunshine. Now think with me for a second. Remember whenever I mentioned the, the loaves, the five loaves and two fishes, and we find out that after Jesus fed the multitudes, there were 12 baskets left over. I never saw it until this week, but many scholars believe that the disciples were to take those baskets as their nourishment for the journey back to their home in Capernaum and possibly even as a gift to their families. And so it's highly likely scholars believe that in the boat, at least at the beginning of the storm, the disciples were surrounded with the 12 baskets. These boats aren't big, but this particular type of basket wasn't big either. So you can just picture as they're in the boat and the storm begins to stir, and here they are literally with evidence that touches all five senses. They've got these baskets of, of bread and fish all around them. They can taste it. They can see it. Uh, they can touch it. They, 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 I guess you could hear it. It affected everything about them, surrounding them in the boat, and still they doubt. The five loaves and two fish weren't enough to open their hearts to faith. And their hearts didn't open to faith, according to Matthew 14, 33, until Jesus took them through the storm. Here's the big idea of today's message. Here's what I want you to remember throughout the week. Jesus transforms his strongest followers with storms. Jesus transforms 
his strongest followers with storms. Now, don't you wish that that wasn't true? I mean, don't you, I would desire that I get strongest during days of sunshine and peace and joy. I would desire, it would be great if I grew the most spiritually when life was great. But you and I both know that's not the way life works. This wasn't the case with Job in the Old Testament. It wasn't the case with Paul in the New Testament. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that he had actually been stoned by large boulders several times. On one occasion, he actually died and God brought him back to life. He was beaten with rods three times, shipwrecked several times. He was robbed. He suffered hypothermia and he suffered near starvation, all recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the apostle Paul says, I learned that God's grace is sufficient for me for his strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll glory in my, my suffering, my weakness, my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The book of Hebrews calls this training or discipline, just as a, a coach trains his or her athletes, just as a, a, a military unit would, would train their soldiers. God trains us. Jesus transforms us through the storms. As a matter of fact, his strongest followers are transformed with the strongest storms. I once, in one of the country churches here in West Virginia, I heard a wise country pastor say this, I would rather limp with the Lord than run with the devil. I would rather limp with the Lord than run with the devil. C.S. Lewis in his book, Problem of Pain said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God wrote this book to the first century church who needed it during a time of suffering. And though our suffering isn't, doesn't come close to what they went through, I believe you need this message just like I've needed this message. You know, I wish there wasn't a pandemic. I wish that some of you weren't suffering in the ways that you're suffering. But you've told me and you've shared stories with our church and with our staff and with our elders about ways that this storm is drawing you closer to Jesus and I want you to know I'm right there with you. I'm on the journey with you. I'm not exempt from this process of God strengthening his disciples. I've probably prayed more. I've probably read my Bible more. I've probably sought the Lord more. I've probably prayed for others more through this pandemic than I ever have in my Christian life. Because why is that? God, Jesus transforms his strongest followers with storms. Here's what I want to encourage you to do today. It comes right out of the gospel of Mark, chapter six and verse 50. Jesus said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. I wanna encourage you, take courage, remember God's power. It is I, remember God's presence this week. Don't be afraid, ask God for his peace. Imagine what can happen if we, the people of God, Imagine what would happen if our children saw this in us, if they saw us having faith in and through the storm. Imagine what would happen with our students 
what would happen with you as a young professional or, or you as a middle-aged man or woman? What, how your family, how your neighbors would see you? Imagine what would happen with you as a senior saint if people knew that you listened to these words more than you listened to the words of CNN or Fox News, constantly on a roller coaster of fear and doubt, but instead just believing the promises of God. Why can we do this? Why can we do this? Well, the answer is simple. It's because Jesus transforms his strongest followers with storms. I've spoken this entire message to those of you who call yourself believers, to those of us who call ourselves Christians, but I wanna leave you with this. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, would you consider asking the question, could God be trying to show me something through this storm? You know, if you think about it, none of us have to suffer to go to heaven. It's not our suffering that gets us to heaven, but it's Jesus's suffering. He suffered, he died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, he raised from the dead the third day. He ascended back into heaven. So it's his suffering that saves us. But as you look in the Bible over and over again, God used times of suffering, even times of pandemic to bring people to saving faith. You think about Abraham, who was called to faith in difficult circumstances. Naaman was confronted with faith through the healing power of God after a disease. Nebuchadnezzar was stricken and humbled with madness before recognizing God's authority. A number of people found Jesus through their blindness, through their disease, through their suffering, through their paralysis. The apostle Paul may not have found Jesus had it not been for his blindness. And so right now I wanna pray for you that wherever you are, however you're listening or watching this message, that you'll put your faith in Jesus and you'll see that Jesus transforms his strongest followers with storms. Let me pray for you. God, I pray right now that all around this city, around this state, country, and world, that men and women and children who hear this message would put their faith and trust in Jesus alone. It's in his name we pray and amen. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.